Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Safranis, and today I'm on with Don Smith. Don, would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, thanks for having me, Alex. Don Smith here. I'm the Chief Strategy and Analytics Officer at Briarly, which is a technology-enabled marketing services firm that designs customer loyalty and engagement solutions. Uh, really excited to be here. Yeah, it's it's great to have you. And I think your company does a lot of interesting things in the space that we often talk about here in, in marketing and, and analytics. Um, so there's a lot that we can talk about. And in our call before this, we, we talked about all sorts of different ideas. Um, so it's kind of tough to find to pick the best start. But let's start with your career path. How did you get to your current role? Yeah, my career path was non-traditional and a little bit weird. <clears throat> but I guess all interesting ones are. I actually started out as an academic. For the first 11 years of my career, I was a political science professor, um, but really in love with the analytics of political science, with econometrics, right? And that's primarily what I was teaching, love to teach statistics and modeling and all of those techniques. <clears throat> and I did that for about 11 years. I can't say that I was amazing or lit the world on fire. Uh, I enjoyed it and I particularly enjoyed teaching, but really what I found out about myself while I was doing that is I love applied research questions. I'm less of a theoretical guy and more of, I just wanna put things into market and see what's working, what policies are working. And so I was consulting a little bit on the side and really loved it and felt like that was a better fit for me. And so, you know, I left academia and made the switch, um, but not full into corporate America yet, because here's, there's some interesting things about academics. You know, those folks, we can be remarkably good at all the techniques and knowing how to use them. Uh, but I think in analytics, a lot of folks in academia struggle with the idea of where data lives in its nativity, right? With the concept of relational databases and someone can be fantastic at econometrics and have no clue how to sling a little SQL to pull some data down and to wrangle it. And I knew that that was a shortcoming that I had as well. And I ended up taking a job working for Dallas County, Texas as a research director, uh, specifically because the Annie E. Casey Foundation was funding a grant on racial disproportionality and sentencing. And so it was a great chance for me to work on something that was meaningful, do some advanced analytics, but also just learn relational databases. And that was cool because they had Oracle databases as well as Microsoft SQL Server. And it's good to just get in and immerse yourself and really understand how data reside and how you need to wrangle data. And I think that was incredibly helpful for me doing that stint um, in that role before I ultimately transitioned over to Briarly, where I've been for just about the past 15 years. Cool. 15 years, that's a long time. What got you to stay so long? You know what? It's so interesting. <laughs> so, um, to be perfectly honest, when you work for a marketing agency or really any agency consulting company for that matter, it's great because you're constantly getting new clients and new business challenges and new opportunities. And honestly, I've stayed at Briarly so long and don't have any intention of leaving because it's been constantly engaging. And I think if you're ever lucky enough to have a job where you're constantly getting new business challenges, new clients, um, that's what keeps it fresh and exciting. Um, I've worked on over 100 different loyalty programs since I've been with Briarly, probably had close to 150 different clients. That's exciting because there's always something new that comes in the funnel and you get to learn about some vertical, some business model you didn't even really think about before, and then you immerse yourself in it. 
And it makes it exciting for me because uh, I, I can't, I typically don't stay in one place or like to do repetitive activities. I don't even really like schedules, you know? And so I never know what's coming uh, for the most part. And that's the way I like it. It's a, it's a really great rewarding career to constantly be challenged. So let's talk about some of the problems that you solve in, in your role uh, related to the customer experience. Um, I think one thing we could talk about is understanding loyalty, customer loyalty, and their connection to a brand, um, and how to quantify that. Have you given that any thought, and what what are your thoughts about it? Sure. It's a big question and an important one, and right now the marketing literature is just a buzz with this notion of emotional loyalty, right? The connection that a customer has to a brand that really transcends reason and starts to look at affinity and identity, and I just love a brand, right? And everyone wants to build emotional loyalty, but it's really difficult to get at measurement of it. And so I have had a blast over the past few years working on trying to quantify a battery um, for emotional loyalty measurement. And really what we came up, and and Alex, this was a journey. Uh, We came up with something called the BLQ, the, the balanced loyalty quotient, or sometimes we call it the Brierly loyalty quotient. And what it really is, is it's, and it's based primarily on primary research. We go out and we talk to customers and we deploy surveys, which is incredibly important when you're designing a program, when you're evaluating its effectiveness. And we've really distilled it down to 14 questions that we ask of customers about a brand and their relationship with the brand. Seven of them are rational and seven of them are emotional. We tested a lot of different techniques. We were really focused on structural equation modeling. And I think there's a lot to like about SCM, but where we landed was actually with a nice, simple algorithm related to those 14 questions that weight out their responses and combine them into a simple index, like from zero to 100. And you can score up to 50 for rational loyalty and up to 50 points for emotional. And you can really see where you land. And more importantly, you can contextualize your competitive set uh, using the same measures and the same questions. So we think we've landed on something that's that's really good and kind of exciting. Yeah, that is exciting. There is the quantitative and the qualitative side of research. Would this fall in the more qualitative side? You know, I think it's quantitative in the sense that, well, the beginning, all of the work that led to it was highly qualitative. We did focus group interviews. We did uh, guided discussions. We really started out that way. I'm a huge Martin Lindstrom fan. I love small data. I love talking to customers and hearing their story. And when you're tackling a new research challenge, you got to start qualitatively. But ultimately, I'm a statistician uh, by training. And I want a quantitative solution. And so what we actually did was we auditioned over a hundred different measures and questions for how we could tap into emotional and rational loyalty. And ultimately we did a lot of very quantitative work, which was concurrent and predictive validation. And what we came up with is actually designed the algorithm that we use to score these responses, weight them and, and generate the indices Um, was designed to maximize three things. One is the net promoter score, which almost everyone has heard about, right? A very, very simple, straightforward, how likely are you to recommend a brand? And I think there's a lot to like with that, Uh, but I just think it's kind of insufficient on its own. In fact, it was one of the motivations for doing this work with our BLQ was to go a little bit deeper, but we still want it to forecast uh, likelihood to recommend, but we also want it to forecast short-term value. 
how much we can expect a customer to spend with the brand and or shift her or his share of wallet with the brand in, in a short-term period, typically one year. And then we also collaborated that with lifetime value scoring, uh, which we do uh, religiously at Briarly for most of our clients. And so really the algorithm was designed for concurrent and predictive validation. And there was something very quantitative that went into the math of how we, of how we dealt that, how we distilled down all of the questions and how we optimized our scoring algorithm. So it's a mix of both. You're definitely taking uh, a very wide approach in terms of the technology that you're using. Like you're using a lot of different kinds of technology. You're you're calculating a lot of different metrics, and I think you're you're looking at them in an interesting way. I really like um, that you're looking at MPS, and I I think everybody kind of agrees that MPS is not. Um, alone enough to determine um, kind of how you're doing with customers. Um, but it is the right direction to look at when, or, or at least it's the right metric among maybe others to look at when you're building your brand um, because it should be seen as a way to listen to your customers. And that should be kind of at the core of a lot of the decisions you make. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think Reichel did a great job when he introduced it. And the appeal of NPS, well, it's so simple, right? So it has parsimony going for it. Everyone can calculate it. Everyone can understand it. Doesn't take much effort to do it if you have a little voice of customer rigor. And I think it is tapping into something important. If customers aren't willing to recommend your brand, you have a problem with your brand equity and your brand name capital, right? So it's very important and there's a lot of validity to it, but here's what's kind of cool. With our BLQ is the NPS loads higher or correlates more highly with rational loyalty than it does with emotional loyalty. And what I mean by that rational loyalty would be things like if you're a retailer, I would ask, do you have good products? Is the customer service good? This retailer solves problems and has a nice return policy. Um, I, I like their merchandise, et cetera, the assortment, all of that. I like the store plan. And customers will say those things, and they will be very, very likely to recommend. But that in and of itself, that, that sort of rational loyalty that NPS is tapping into is a necessary but insufficient condition for having emotional loyalty. Because emotional loyalty is almost loyalty without reason, right? It's where someone says, you know, I would be devastated if this brand went out of business. I really look forward to my interactions. They know me. I'm a regular, right? Um, and that kind of sentiment buys you forgiveness. And it's amortized over an extended customer lifetime value as you grow it. Um, and it's that emotional loyalty that's really powerful. And you can have high NPS and still not have that devotion. You can have a customer who will recommend your brand and they will recommend four of your competitors as well. And they really haven't shifted share or consolidated their spending. And so that's why we just wanted to go beyond it while also paying homage to it because it is a really great, simple, straightforward measure. Okay, so are you saying that rational um, ver rational is the better uh, of the two? Uh, emotional is, I think, the brass ring and what we want to strive for, but they're all part of a composite. In fact, when we do our BLQ, it's sort of a balanced loyalty score. You want to have both. And what I'm also saying is you can't have true emotional loyalty where someone loves your brand and is tied to it 
if you don't have high rational loyalty. No one's going to love a brand that they don't think has good products or merchandise or customer service, right? But just doing those things and checking the box isn't enough to build that kind of affinity that comes with true emotional loyalty. So you got to get the rational right because nothing we can do as marketers can grow emotional loyalty in the absence of good rational loyalty or good customer service, good products. Um, but you just can't stop there, right? You need to dig deeper. And that's really what emotional loyalty is about uh, and tapping into this, this very different vector of the consumer calculus. Would you create campaigns around developing first rational and then emotional loyalty as a marketing org? Well, you want to do all of those. And hopefully we look at a campaign, we can't necessarily at face value decompose it and go, this is rational, this is emotional, right? Because I think it's part of a concerted, integrated marketing effort that we're really talking about. But the ways that you build, but certainly you want to be doing things like speaking to a customer in a personalized way, putting relevant content in front of her or him. And that's rational, but you also want to find ways to inject into the customer or the member experience some delightful things that go beyond the transaction. And I think that's the key. Do the normal marketing that you like to do, right? Talk about products, talk about sales, if that's what you're doing, a new merchandise set, a promotional calendar, all of those good things. But then also take the opportunity to honor the data that you have about your customer or your member and inject some vitality into that dialogue. Do something fun. Right. And that can be a simple one of one of the clients that I work with thrift books. Uh, it's an online book retailer. At the end of the year, they literally did an appreciation day for all of their program members. And just without any any pre planning, really, or letting the customer know, they just gave everyone a free book and put it in their wallet and said, here, thank you for being awesome. Don't care how much you've spent with us in the past. Everyone gets a free book. Go ahead and redeem it right now. That is a surprise and delight. Uh, and it was incredibly well received. And when you do something like that, no one had to earn it. No one knew they were getting it. That injects an authenticity into the relationship that's awesome. And as marketers, we need to find more of those things or, or just really find ways to incentivize our members or our customers to share their feedback beyond the transaction. You know, encourage them to write product reviews and even even reward them for doing that or for being part of customer panels or reviewing new products or looking at marketing collateral, they will do all of those things and be invested in your brand if you give them the opportunity. Or at least some customers and the ones you want to do that will be willing to do that. And so I think the campaign mix needs to be a little bit of, yeah, do rational marketing and talk about products, et cetera, but find ways to think about key inflection points in the journey and do something special to celebrate the customer. And the key is being non-transactional. You don't always have to ask for a next purchase. In fact, it's incredibly impersonal to be doing that in marketing. What, what I love to do is work with our brands to find ways to just do other special things. If a customer just made a major purchase with you, don't send them another, the next day they don't want a 10% off email message but they might love to receive some information about the product that they just purchased that said, here's how other customers like you have rocked this, or here's how they're wearing it, or here's tips on using it, right? Those things are great. And I think we're seeing slowly more and more of that entering the marketing mix. 
And customers really embrace it. Uh, it does nothing but good things for building a relationship. And so that's that was kind of a long-winded answer to your question, Alex. But I think the marketing mix, you just need to make sure that you're creating lots of different experiences. And I think the, the toughest part of this is not going overboard with too much marketing too. And that is one of the, the challenges from an optimization perspective is no one wants spray and pray marketing anymore where a brand sends up an email every day, right? Be judicious. Yeah, I don't like it, that. Yeah. I have to unsubscribe from everything. Yeah, I mean, it's still shocking to me how many brands do it. Sometimes I'll get two emails a day and that's just rarely warranted, right? And we know from the analytics on this that you don't just keep sending, sending, sending. And, you know, there's a lot of diminishing returns that factors into that. If we we're going to look at the number of times I emailed you to see your loyalty, I better log that independent variable, right? Um, because it's going to, it's going to, and then I'm going to hit a point uh, where it could even become detrimental, right? that restraint of communicate cleanly and honestly, but mix it up and find ways to anticipate need state or just give a customer a chance to play a game or do something else that isn't quite as transactional and that shows respect for their patronage. And if you do that, you can start changing the balance in the marketing mix. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's And it's definitely very classic in a, in a marketing theory sense, you know, really thinking about your customer's mindset, what their, you know, pain point is, how they're going about solving it and learning about it and, you know, using that to kind of, and, and if you think about it, that's, that's where you want to grab their attention with those honest, um, kind of emotional, uh, touch points. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's a bit, you don't have to go overboard with it either, you know, but just a little bit of authenticity and some planning will go a long way in terms of changing up the narrative with your customer. So if we were to quantify marketing success, I use KPIs to um, measure how our decisions are improving the customer experience. What KPIs would you use? Yeah, and so there can be a long list of those, right? And that that's the thing is, and some of them are programmatic because that's what I do for a living is I design and market customer loyalty programs and customer engagement solutions. So certainly I want to be looking at some top line KPIs, but even if I wasn't and I was thinking about the health of just a customer file, a CRM effort, whatever the case might be, you know, typically we'll start to look at things and go, okay, I've got to look at the bottom line. So one, I'm always interested in customer retention, right? And I know that's such a simple KPI and everyone throws it out. A lot of people say, what's your retention rate? Well, um, good. If it's a dichotomous retention rate, it's a good starting point. But we have an expression at Briarly that retention is not a dichotomous concept, right? In other words, people will say, hey, I had, this is how many customers shopped with my brand last year. And this is how many returned to shop with my brand again. I had 78% retention. And I think that that really is an important metric, but it's just scratching the surface of a much more important dynamic. Uh, what we like to do is dig in and really interrogate that usual suspect, if you will, of retention. And I love to look at it and go, but how much retention velocity did I get? How much spending and transactional activity occurred from a Delta perspective? 
are those customers who are retained spending more or spending less? Are they shopping more often or less than they were in the previous period? And you need to start calculating those velocity scores to really understand what that means in terms of just saying I have high retention because you could have an 80% retention rate, but you could have a negative 45% spend delta over a period, which means hey, the customers have stayed with you, but they're on that slippery slope you know, of decomposition or attrition. You know, they're spending less, they're shopping less often, and it's really important to understand that. And so to that end, every one, and the point I'm making is every simple marketing KPI, something like retention that's so vanilla, it needs to come with a, a set of diagnostics. And I'm a huge fan of Sankey's, Sankey diagrams. I just love them. They're so oh, easy wow. to- I mean, right? They're so much fun. I like and- them. They're hard to maintain. I, I was in charge of maintaining one and they're like notoriously hard from like a visual perspective, but I agree. They're very cool to, to well, interpret. Well, you're right. And not only that, they can, they can be like, it can be the Sankey Panky. You know what I'm saying? It can be a little crazy if you have too much going on with yeah. your Sankeys. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of simple segmentations for tracking my business. Mm-hmm. I just like nice, clean, relative standing segmentation. This is my best in class or my tried and true customer. Here's my rising star or my second best. Mm-hmm. And I like to look at those and see the flow. How many fell down and stubbed their toe? And how many of the folks in some of the lower segments rose up? We'll sometimes do this as deciles as well, but deciles start to get messy, you know, when it's 10 by 10 and a lot of flows are living in there. But I think with Sankey's from a visualization perspective, if you keep the number of segments simple and you're really just underscoring your efforts, where am I succeeding and where am I tripping? You've got something. And more importantly, if you build a discipline around that customer migration over time, uh, you could be putting trigger campaigns into market that literally tells me, oh my goodness, Alex just fell out of the best segment by a lot. He is sliding. I need to do something. Mm-hmm. Let's put a best offer in front of him. And, and I think to that extent, it becomes actionable. Um, but, but it's amazing how many times someone will say, you know, I don't know why my net spending is down. I mean, my retention is 80%. Well, let's look at the health of that retained customer file and, and really see what we can see, right? And so to me, if I had to pick one that everyone talks about, it's certainly, it's certainly retention. Uh, and I want to look at it. But while we look at, you know, you'd ask, what are the other KPIs and key indicators? And I think all of them come into play. I want to look at how often customers are shopping, what they're spending, if there's growth or proliferation in the average basket, right? Am I attracting, you know, do I have one trick ponies who are shopping with me that just buy one particular product? Or are they really exploiting the product hierarchy and enjoying everything it has to offer? And we measure all of that as we go through. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm also obsessed with customer acquisition, attrition, and reactivation metrics. Mm-hmm. In, in fact, we've even built out, I had a lot of fun working on building it. We have a proprietary metric at Briarly called Balor, B-A-L-O-R, and it's the becoming active to lapsing out ratio. It's really simple. It's just the idea that in a given period, let's say it's a year that takes you know, advantage of the full retail seasonality inherent in a typical cycle. How many customers came into the funnel? Did I get them into my brand for the first time? And how many did I reactivate from the annals of the dead, right? I hadn't seen them in three years and they came back in. That's how I'm filling the funnel. That's my becoming active. And then I want to look at how many over that same time period fell out due to attrition and didn't transact, shop, or do business with me. 
And I literally just take those two figures and create an index around it, right? Or rather a ratio. And if I'm at 1.0, I'm at parity. I'm getting just as many folks in the funnel as are lapsing out due to attrition. I'm level pegging. Um, but what I really care about more than just those counts is what those customers are doing. And so we calculate that valor also looking at how often customers are shopping. Are the people that I got in shopping more than the people who fell out did before when they were active? And the same, are they spending more? Am I getting healthier spending? And so what you end up seeing is this neat stepwise progression in a really healthy marketing regimen where, hey, I could be level pegging and just gaining as many customers as I'm losing, but the ones that I'm gaining are shopping more often, bing, lift. And in addition, bing, they're also spending more. And so they're healthier. And that's how you grow a healthy brand. And, and we love calculating those things because that attrition to uh, to acquisition ratio that comes into this is a great leading indicator of what's going to happen to customer retention, uh, typically five or six months down the road, and so you really need to be looking at all of it from that health and uh, health and welfare of the customer and the customer file, and so I love all of those simple top line metrics, mm -hmm. right, that that go into this. But clearly, I'm also trying to calculate for every, and you know, we run loyalty programs, Alex, and the, the hardest measure is, of course, calculating an ROI, whether that's on the marketing regimen or that's on a program in and of itself. And uh, that's the part, it's incredibly fun, mm -hmm. right? But you've got to come up with lots of different ways. You're going to have to triangulate your research strategy to really exploit some metrics to, because we will constantly be challenged by CFOs, people in treasury that say, oh, marketing and loyalty, those are dilutive activities, right? We'd be better off doing these other things. And we have to go in and take the data and prove uh, or really be persuasive that the program drove incremental activity, right? Mm -hmm. and, and more than paid for itself, from a cost perspective. And the cleanest way to do that is come up with a, a nice ROI for the marketing program. And there's a whole set of methods that you can use to get at that, and it's really fun. Uh, your data analysts and data scientists usually fight to work on those projects when we do them. Uh, it is cool. Yeah, I, I've been involved in lifetime value analytics. One important metric I think that correlates to the efficiency of marketing spend is brand equity. How many people in the marketplace are talking about your product? And if a lot of people are already talking about it, then your marketing is going to have less of a differentiating impact on the customer um, in their funnel because they already know about you they're already talking about you maybe with their friends. Maybe there's an influencer who's telling them about this. Those are going to be much stronger um, drivers for a customer decision than um, a display ad. But if a, if a brand doesn't exist basic in, you know, it, in terms of a brand equity, like people don't know about it yet, then marketing is going to have a tremendous impact on that brand. I mean, I think you're onto something there. And if you think about like a classic example, I think people would wait in line in a sewer to get the new iPhone, right? If you think about the cachet that Apple's created, it's always innovative. It's always exciting. People can't wait to get the devices and up 
upgrade. And so you've just got something. And they, they'll do whatever they need to do uh, to build that. But they've got tremendous brand equity. They're already enjoying it. Does it really require a customer loyalty program, for example? Maybe, um, but probably not. Whereas, and, and in fact, if you think about like uh, Ron Johnson, when he was CEO of Apple, right? I mean, it was all about building the Apple store, make it a destination, make it cool and hip, and it'll pull people in. And that worked. But look what happened when he went to a brand like JCPenney, which might have struggled a little bit more with that and basically got rid of the sales and got rid of the loyalty programs and said, we're going to have one flat price. And that thing went over like a lead balloon. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the difference in those two brands. It sort of taps into like you can be a premium brand with an innovative product that has a life of its own. And it's already enjoying this trajectory. And so it needs a very different solution uh, than a brand that needs constant nurture, constantly fostering awareness and really also incentivizing customers to consolidate their spending with your brand and to spend more give them a reason, create an opportunity cost. So I think all of that factors in the, the nature of the brand itself is really important in terms of uh, how we solution out marketing. Yeah, and it definitely is a tailored approach. Do you think in the future, the technology we use and the marketing stack will look much more similar across companies of different industries? Or do you think it will always require kind of a custom ingredient list for success? You know what? I hope it's both. And what I, what I mean by that is I think we will see more consolidated. I mean, as the platforms get more integrated and these things come together, you are going to see more scale, right, of tapping into major KPIs, major solutions, visualizing them in, in better ways. And I think the major tools will do that. But I also think that marketing continues to change. I mean, one of the things that attracts me to our profession is that business models evolve and we keep coming up with new ideas and every brand should have some proprietary metrics that it looks at, right? That are part of its business plan, Uh, even secret sauce and we need to measure them. And I hope that we'll always be pushing that envelope. But what what I, I mean, it's still amazing though, if you just look at the tool sets that are out there, how often a web analytics tool really doesn't connect with a campaign tool, really doesn't connect with the email solution uh, and to a larger transactional database. A lot of times there's still a kludginess there mm-hmm. where we just spend time pulling that and hurting the cats data-wise, building out a little metadata and just trying to report on it in what probably should be more automated and more seamless. Mm -hmm. And so I've been surprised that we haven't seen that kind of integrated marketing scale really come to life faster, but it it doesn't, it, it will. And we will continue to see that proliferation. We've been building it in our tools that we have and building out our own data science environments for our customers to play in and see their own data. And I know uh, many other folks and agencies are doing that as well. But I hope that every time we think we've built a better mousetrap, there's much more to do because we're generating more insights. We're coming up with ways to be even more granular to slice and dice data and action analytical insights. So I hope that there's a progression Mm-hmm. as we move forward. Um, but it's just amazing how much uh, basic analytics, descriptive statistics, and data cleansing just have to be done in any business model. And I do believe that's the case. Yeah. I, I'm i also surprised by it because um, it does require quite a bit of overhead. And to, like you said, herding cats is an interesting way to put it. I think it's fair because um, it requires 
a sense of direction and understanding that is very difficult to communicate. Um, and, and you have to communicate it across a lot of people. And um, there's a lot of opinions, and you have to consider those opinions. And so um, it becomes kind of like a fight. And that brings me to another question, which is, you know, when you look at analytics, it gives you a sense of certainty and a sense of uh, truth that you can uh, communicate from to the rest of the business. But that doesn't always, that's not always met with open arms. Sometimes analytics is fighting the gut instinct of the executives. So in the case that they are at odds, how do you reconcile the data when it's going against the status quo? Well, you know what? You can, uh, the the mantra I live by is be a trusted advisor to your clients um, and really try to take the data and figure out what it's telling you, come up with an answer and provision out that answer and be as transparent as possible with it, um, knowing that not everyone will want to receive a message or see it that same way. And this is this is a common occurrence, I think, for folks. And this is at different levels, right? Sometimes when we design these customer loyalty programs and we go through a rigorous voice of customer financial modeling simulation methodology to figure out the right incentive structure, how to set it up, what it's going to work best. And it is not uncommon that you'll have a CMO or some other executive go, oh, I was really hoping it would be more like this. I just think our customer would like this better. And I will even go in and show, hey, you know, like these are the results from the conjoint and from the monadic testing and all of the voice of customer research and this concept actually fared better and it's got more economic solvency and sometimes folks are like but my gut hypothesis is just telling me uh that that's the case all you can do is make your case persuasively share the data don't keep anything behind the scenes of secret sauce and democratize it and let folks come to their own conclusions but sometimes even when we get a different opinion about direction that's different from what the data is suggesting we'll even pilot different versions of a program or a marketing solution and say why don't we put both of those out in the market and let's set some controls up and let's let, let the response of customers dictate uh who is right or rather which one is the best solution for the brand you know and so we're always trying to make that case and i think that the same thing is true i'll have people challenge us and go the i think the program is dilutive it's a cost center you know, uh, way too much marketing, way too many rewards. And so we'll have to go in and very carefully craft um, an analysis to assuage fears about that and get to the bottom of it. And typically we're doing like nearest neighbor matching to create cohorts of members and non-members and see the difference of like customers over time. We'll triangulate that with some regression modeling that comes in as well so we can more fully specify what's happening. Um, but at the end of the day, someone can always look at you and go, well, anyone can lie with statistics or anyone can, you know, the devil can cite scripture for his purpose if you will. And nice. I think, you know, I, I think what happens though is I have had the most success when we've taken an open stakeholder approach to those types of efforts. And so if I'm being challenged on an ROI analysis, I say, you know what, let's pull all the folks from the finance team in, including naysayers, and make sure they're part of the core team that blesses the research design, that supervises it, that validates it 
right? And allow that to happen. And I've had a lot more, when you take that approach of co-creation and co-analytics with stakeholders, if you're lucky enough to get that buy-in, it usually produces something that has, that just has a lot more credibility overall in the organization. And I think that's incredibly important to do. If we try to squirrel away as I'm the super smart analyst or I'm the consultant and I'm going to squirrel away behind closed doors and do my magic in my black box and tell you an answer, uh, don't be surprised if someone doesn't always like your answer. But if you open it up and you co-create or you co-analyze, you have a much better chance at having broad support for the conclusion. I think you have a really good skill in kind of putting together a sensible argument using math you you know you you have that authority where it gets a lot easier to sell at that point versus like when you're kind of trying to pull things together but aren't necessarily as seasoned i think the good rule of thumb is make it a team effort too and so i'm a huge fan of peer review and we do that at Briarly. You know, we may have a vice president working on some big project, but everyone reviews it as a team. And we look at the slideware mm-hmm. and we go, okay, what's the story? Is it simple? Yeah, you don't need to, you know, and, and sometimes we'll catch ourselves going, yeah, we don't need a footnote about multicollinearity for this audience. We'll do that when we review it with the data science team, mm-hmm. uh, with the clients, right? Uh, just keep it nice and simple mm-hmm. and make it as visual as possible, right? And don't try to overclaim. You know, be conservative in any assumptions that you make. But I do believe that a team effort for storytelling makes every story better. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, I, I want to ask about direct mail and best practices on measurement, because it's a very different channel than online uh, channels like paid search and display. So um, what are some of the best practices around measuring it and how does it differ from the other? Yeah, Yeah, I mean, it even differs from just the other outbound channels too, right? Like email and SMS and push notifications. I mean, direct mail, and some people say it's dead. I, I assure you that it's not. And it works very, very well for some of our clients, but it's certainly a costly vehicle. And so I think the number one, direct mail just has to be informed by a solid financial pro forma. And you have to figure out what your reach looks like. You better understand how much a direct mail piece costs, right? Or if you have options for cost to keep it down and what that looks like. But you really have to be planning who needs the direct mail uh, to drive a response. And so for me, the number one best practice is every brand that invests considerably in direct mail has response models in market, right? I mean, that's just table stakes. If you don't use response models, um, that is just a huge mistake as far as optimizing a direct mail budget. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone knows how to build those. They would be typically, you know, maybe two stages, a logistic model that's like, here's the people that I sent the direct mail piece to, and here was the likelihood that they responded. And then here's how much incremental spend I got from them as well. Um, and I think most brands that have a direct mail budget do that. And good, you're ticking a box. That is a minimum best practice. But I think it, what's surprising to me is how often uh, brands are not doing net lift modeling. and. And this comes back to a larger problem in outbound communications and marketing. Alex, control groups work <laughs> and traditional research design matters if you want to understand the efficacy of these vehicles. And having the discipline to go, okay, here's the target audience for this piece of direct mail, but I'm going to hold out a portion of them and not send the direct mail to them so that I can use them as the baseline to model what happened there. 
that's how you really get incremental. And there's no great substitute for not doing that. But more importantly, if you're using a control group, you should be building your response models off of that data as well. And you shouldn't just be looking at who responded, you should be looking at who responded only because they got the direct mail piece. And I think that's the gist of net lift responder modeling um, that just is a little bit more focused and really takes advantage of that research design component when you do modeling. And we always see an improvement in lift in terms of targeting. And so I guess I'll summarize it because I was long-winded. The best practices for direct mail is have a theory of action, let it be guided by a financial pro forma, leverage test and control, and build, continuously build and optimize net lift response models that leverage that data and constantly challenge yourself to figure out the optimal point of cutting a file and figuring out how many folks you need to reach to. And that's why all of that has to tie back to ROI. And you can send too much direct mail and send it too often. But when it works, man, does it work. Um, and it's not uncommon. I love to do store visits with our clients. And it's exciting to me when I'll actually see someone take a beautiful photograph of like, let's say it was an outfit for a fashion retailer, and they will walk into the store and they will have ripped it out of the direct mail. And they're like, I have to have this. Help me put together this outfit, right? Oh, wow. That that makes you feel great and you know that it worked because we can see that we put the same outfit in a digital campaign and we just didn't drive the same kind of attention that a beautiful piece of direct mail drives but we also have to understand that direct mail is costly and if you do it too much it will be a problem as well um, so there's really that art and the science to it but and i think you've got to change up the direct mail set too. If I added one more answer to your question, it would be constantly recast your file. Challenge yourself a little bit and go, if I were to go a little bit deeper into the file of who I'm going to spend this 58 cents a mailer on, who would it be? And work on some hypotheses about audiences that you might be able to reach and slowly go in, take a random sample, send some direct mail, test, test, test against hypotheses, see what you get, and that will help you optimize that regimen. Uh, it can't be static. And we can never just say, hey, this campaign worked really well, so I'm going to use the same algorithm and do nothing else the next time. It needs to be building a better mousetrap. I mean, that's direct mail analytics is progressive and needs to follow best practices from soup to nuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. That that's a really, uh, really insightful, and it clearly comes from years of experience. Would you say? Maybe. I mean, yeah, I have I have some experience doing, it, and I've learned the hard way and gotten better. And so I have things that 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 I love to do. Um, but yeah, I mean, there there is the uh, the school of hard knocks. I think in some of this too, and. And I think there's the, you know what it is, the, the experience is learning that there's an art and a science to all of this. And you need to be able to do both, right? Um, and, and trusting yourself to build hypotheses and test them and, and never, ever assume that you know everything or you've nailed it because you've never nailed it. And that's why we chose these careers, because we can always be doing better and pushing the envelope a little bit further. Um, and I think that's what's exciting. And that's what gets teams excited, too, or at least the types of analysts that I like to hire and bring on board are the ones who constantly want to keep trying something different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. So on along the note of direct mail, how do you enable organizational change from traditional measurement to incremental measurement or, like you said, testing versus control and the like? 
Well, you try to make the case as best you can um, and to be a trusted advisor and explain why, but I think you have to marry the two together. Pay homage to the traditional measures that folks understand. I mean, those do have a core, they are basically bottom line measures that the brand will care about. And I think you need to be, <laughs> you need to protect and defend those, but then also work in these notions of measuring incrementalism and engineering a research design, whether it's setting aside a testing control group or making sure that you're looking at different responses to campaigns that you put into market and going deeper, seeing what kind of product indices you generated that you didn't generate before. And the only way <clears throat> that you'll engender that case for this change that we're talking about is if you use it to provision insights and then get permission to develop some new marketing campaigns that leverage those insights right, and drive more money and prove, hey, I just did this. I went after some folks that hadn't purchased in this really sticky product category that should have because they look so much like the people who did. I incentivized it and I got a first purchase and that turned into a second purchase. It turned into an habituated cadence around that product, right? The, the point being is if if you make the case through doing some simple analyses and go, look, I've got three insights and I think we can build three really cool campaigns to go after next best action marketing, you're off to the races. Businesses will absolutely respond when they see revenue come in and they see desired behaviors set up as a result of the insights that you've created. But I would be lying if I said there's not going to be a friction, too, between traditional measurements. I mean, think about how, how difficult it can be to just do a control group, especially, you know, when someone's like, I believe that the campaign works. I don't want to leave money on the table with a 1% control. You know, I want every penny of it. Okay. Um, and so I think that's the, the dynamic that we're in. And even if we don't have a control, there are other ways to get at it. And that's where it's fun. And we get to reach into our bag of methodological tricks. Um, but I, I would agree that different organizations have different proclivities for embracing modern analytics versus traditional measurement. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Um, I really, really like how you put that. And, and it's true. People will chase the opportunity. And if you're bringing in customers and you're performing well with, um, with a test, then there's going to be a lot of attention around it. Um, you know, even I think the biggest fight is before you can prove yourself. And then once you have a test that you can set up, then it's really an honest fight. Um, yeah. and, uh, and that's kind of where you have to back down if it doesn't work, I think. Yeah. Oh, I agree with you. And you can be wrong in your hypothesis too. We all have been. And that's the nice part of if you have a good research design, you just simply can admit that or you do a deep dive and figure out where you were right and which assumptions need recalibration, you know, to, to re-engineer it. But I think putting those tests in market uh, is important and understanding and helping organizations understand that most good marketing solutions are driving, you know, we're driving behavior at the margins. It's not like we're going to put an email out that generates a 50% lift in spending, right? That would be a strange causal result. Usually we're chipping away at it, right? And just doing enough to, uh, to change the behavior of a sizable number of customers or a sizable enough number of customers that it makes a difference on the bottom line. And that's the nature of what we do. Marketing is incremental um, and it's a long game. It's not just a short bam, bam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, have you seen any 
successful integrations between marketing channels in a singular campaign and more specifically like direct mail and email? Oh, yeah, yeah. It, you know what? I mean, and I think this is easiest to do. This should be part of actually best practice for outbound marketing. You know, outbound is anytime we're planning the cadence. I'm sending an email. Uh, I'm doing a push notification. I'm sending an SMS or I'm planning a piece of direct mail, or maybe I'm even doing traditional phone marketing. I wouldn't do much of that, but yeah, it's possible. And what you should be looking at is preferred channels of customers, but constantly challenge yourself to try the reinforcement of that. If you've done a direct mail campaign with a really great offer, for example, and you don't see a response a weekend, definitely for those that are opted into email, you want to have that email reinforcement that reminds them, even shows the image of the direct mail piece and gives them a, you know, don't forget, we're still holding that offer for you um, and, and push that out there. And testing and controlling is what's really important because if I've got, you know, 100,000 customers that I send a direct mail piece to that I can also email, I want to make sure that I don't send the email to all of them. I want to do a control holdout where I look at direct mail by itself uh, as opposed to direct mail plus email. And then I also look at email by itself without direct mail. And each of those has to be looked at to kind of get a sense of what's working. And that will give me a read on the effect of each channel and how they come together. But more importantly, uh, and this is challenging, you can start working towards an optimization theory of action where you figure out the best channel for some customers. And we found that some customers who respond to direct mail don't need it, right? Good digital marketing works for them as well. So you can start to reduce the cadence and save that money and reinvest it elsewhere, whereas other customer types need it. Um, and that's where this gets really, really interesting. But I, I'm a huge fan of, of picking my battles carefully, but making sure that there's a true integrated marketing solution, at least for outbound messaging. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we're getting better at doing that for inbound inflection points as well, you know, because more and more these customers, they're in control of their journey. They decide when they're going to log on to the website. And when you see them, you can still have a special message that pushes them to their next best action or reminds them of a great deal. Or maybe they have a reward that they haven't used that's about to expire, but here, use it right now. And when we're brokering in their interest and we're serving up those personalized messages at the real time points, uh, I, I think that's equally important and, and where the marketing stack needs to go. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about different um kind of almost like a decision tree but like uh well you you did say you like sankeys so this is uh very similar in, in my mind um but you're talking about designing the customer experience in different flows depending on what their intention is what they want to get uh from their from the brand whether it's to learn more or to pur purchase yeah, absolutely. And I really think it does come down to, it's an overwrought term, but journey mapping is incredibly important. And you can't map every journey and they're not going to flow as linearly as you might like when we're talking about customers navigating their own journey, right? But you can figure out what the major touch points are, what the major need states are, and you can provision analytics and messaging to rise up and meet the customer on her or his terms. Uh, and that's what's really fun. That's that's what we enjoy doing is figuring out, wow, 
how do I, if I see this customer, maybe she's irate, she goes on the website and she has a problem, you know, what else can I be serving to her at that point that might make a better experience or show that, uh, that we're in this with you and we're brokering on your behalf? I mean, I think all of those flows are so incredibly important. We're not going to do it perfectly. We can't anticipate everything that will happen, but I think we can, that's what we do as analysts, right? We pick the most probabilistic scenarios and we, we invest in them. And that's where we should focus our efforts. And I think most brands could be doing a better job at really mapping out those journeys, especially the brands, Alex, that are still stuck in spray and pray marketing, right? Which which just uh, drives me crazy as someone who receives marketing materials. I hate when it's clear that everyone got the same email. Everyone should not get the same email. We're different. We have different preferences. We do different things. Come on. Yeah. And also, it's interesting that the data we buy or collect is often many, many data points per customer. And for some reason, the only element that seems to be customized in marketing is the name and the address. And even though we have tons and tons of different preferential and behavioral data points, um, isn't that interesting? Yeah, and amen. I mean, um, I I think that's the point is we have so much access to zero and first party data. And I think when you're collecting it as marketers, when we're taking that data and tying it to a customer, we have a social contract with that customer. If they're sharing with us, we should be using it to create a more personalized experience for that person. Right. If we can see this person has been shopping with me for five years and, you know, like uh, and maybe I'm a children's retailer, for example. Well, it's pretty clear they've got three boys and no girls, so we need to know that. And we need to start modeling the experience so the first thing they're seeing isn't an Easter bonnet in April. We'd rather get them to young men's fashions, right? Mm-hmm. And start pointing that. And some of those things are very, very simple because we can infer from the, uh, the first-party transactional data what's happening. But I, I think there's more to it. I think as marketers, if we set up good places like preference centers – and do voice of customer surveys and ask customers what they really like and what they want to hear about and record it in the database. We have the ammunition that we need to do something more tailored and more personalized, and we will develop a more authentic relationship with that customer that makes it feel like we know them and we're listening to them. Um, and that's what that's what I love to do, and I'm glad that marketing is actually moving in that direction. And I think the death of the cookie and some of the other things that are on the horizon are going to contribute to that more. Customers are going to share more zero and first-party data, um, and, and they will do that if we as marketers respect it, don't sell it, and use it to make their lives better and to make their experience with the brands better. So where do you see data privacy and management going in the future in the next five, 10 years? Yeah, it's a hot mess and it's going to continue to, uh, and I mean that in the very best way, uh, not being super cheeky there. Mm -hmm. Look, uh, you're going to see more and more regulations. And I think it's the proliferation of regulations, like, because like, you know, we do business in Europe, so I have to do my GDPR training in addition to my California privacy training in addition to, and so there's a lot of standards that go into this. Um, And I think that you're just going to see the regulations around data and data privacy become more customer centric and more restrictive. And I think that's okay. Um, We just take advantage of what we have about a customer. Right. And as long as there's an open and secure way, you know, and we're doing all the things that we need to be doing, we're not collecting a lot of PII data. Uh, we're, We're housing data in warehouses and making sure that we're protecting privacy. 
and we're only collecting data that a customer explicitly allows us to have about her or him, we have the ingredients that we need to make something fantastic. Um, and as long as we respect customer data and don't sell it, don't treat it like a commodity, uh, we will generate good marketing experiences, but we're going to continually have to stay on top of this. And we are going to see a lot more investment, you know, in data encryption and uh, in, in really doing a lot of other things to protect and decouple um, customers from the data in ways that that, you know, quite frankly, are just going to get more and more challenging. We're going to be spending a lot more on security. It's already happening for most of us, and we know that we'll see more of it. Um, and I think that's okay, because what is worse for a brand's reputation than a data breach? You know? few things. Yeah. I mean, and, and this has happened to the major firms, you know, that even sell third-party data. Um, and so I think the more that we're saying, look, we're always encrypting data at rest. We're always hiding the customer's data. We're hashing things out. We're limiting access. Um, th that's a good thing on balance because there's nothing worse than identity theft and fraud resolution, you know, and and, uh, and fraud that's yeah. occurring. Um, and so and it's unfortunate because it's not a sexy part of what we do, right? But it's a very, very necessary one. And on balance, I, I think I've come to the conclusion that anything that is done to protect a customer, uh, her privacy, uh, his right to know, his right to be forgotten, all of those things are good. And then customers will choose what relationships to have with brands and the brands that respect the social contract of the data that they share are the ones who will rise to the top in the customer relationship marketing set. Yeah, this is reminding me of Apple's privacy first marketing and how much of a point they make about it. And I think that matters a lot. Yeah, it's it's the new table stakes. It's important to all of us and it should be. Yeah, I, I think it matters a lot. It is table stakes, but at the same time, there's levels to it. And the brands that really focus, I think data privacy is now the the version of safety that for automobiles in maybe the 70s when Volvo, you know, had all their advertising around being the safest vehicle, even if it wasn't, that was such an important factor for consumers that it it gave a lift to Volvo's brand. Um, so I think that's a similar thing now, where even if you are a brand that, you know, everybody has to take data privacy very seriously, but if you kind of um, make it, an extra part of who you are, which is very like what Apple does. Like, of course, their phones are going to be safe, but they're still spending a lot of money buying billboards telling you they're super duper safe. Um, do you? I, I think that that really does matter still to consumers, and that there there's a benefit actually to you know really pushing that data privacy angle. Would you agree? I, I do. I do, and we're seeing more of it. Like we create loyalty programs and one of the first things that we need to do when a customer signs up is explain all the ways that this is done for their benefit and make it clear you know don't opt people into affiliate marketing and certainly don't sell their information to third parties and make it clear to them we're going to protect it and we never use your information for anything other than to give you a better experience and hook you up with things that you like um, and I think brands should invest in that. It's a really great point, Alex. And I think it kind of fits in the new world order that data privacy is one of these things 
in relationship building that fits in that new vector, right? Because I would put philanthropy and sustainability in there as well. And, and in some cases, commitments to progression uh, or commitments to sort of social justice or issues of equity. And a lot of brands are really doubling down on those in different ways that make sense for their constituencies. But you're seeing brands just spend a lot more time building philanthropic relationships, supporting charities, make clear what their values are, and do that kind of value-based marketing, um, committing to sustainability in many cases. And I think data privacy fits right in there too. All of those are these things. I mean, those are the optics through which customers view the brand and it's part of brand reputation. And I think it's on balance a good thing because not all brands are created equal when it comes to respecting customer data and privacy. And um, the best experience for, for our profession, if we're to be successful as marketers, we need to protect customer data and make customers feel secure in marketing. There's a balance in how tailored something should be um, to optimize the user experience without that creep factor. Um, yes. That's, that's, that's kind of a funny, uh, funny thing that, that actually does have to be thought about. Um, I, I really like what you were saying about security being important, but also uh, sustainability, um, justice, right? Things that people care about. Um, what happens when a brand may have one of these at odds? For example, um, have you ever seen an, a company that that is doing a lot of direct marketing, sending a lot of paper out, um, but that's actually like against kind of like a green initiative? And how do you think that can, there's a way to kind of like roll a reduction in direct mail into like a green campaign? Have you ever seen something like that happen when a consumer base cares about sustainability? Or is that kind of a lost cause? No, I mean, but I think you're right that there's a there's inherent contradiction <laughs> in, in all of this. And most consumers are not doing a full audit of this either, you know? And so I think what's interesting is you will see brands that are spending, they're probably producing quite a lot of paper and actually quite a lot of packaging with many of their products too, right? Because the research has told them that the packaging is, is more appealing and they'll still be pushing their sustainability initiatives and have a sustainability um, sort of point of view that they share with their customers. I suspect more often than not, those are probably at odds with one another, but I don't know how much time customers are actually spending on it. I think, I think if you're putting out good, you know, and this is an exercise in branding and marketing is here is brand X's commitment to the environment. And here's the five things that we're doing and how we're improving. That still broadcasts a lot more than not doing any of those things. But I think, and I think this issue becomes amplified. This issue of contradiction is probably amplified when it becomes to social issues. Uh, because you can imagine that you have different elements of, of your audience that might be turned off by something. You might be like, and our brand is all in, we're creating equity and diversity and we're recognizing and we're doing a great job of bringing traditionally underrepresented groups into our leadership set. Um, and you can have other folks that, that, are, that may even find that off-putting in the customer base. And so you just have to make some decisions. But I mean, brands have done it. I mean, look what Nike did for heaven's sakes. They looked at their customers and made a decision to lean in to a point of view. I don't think every brand can afford to do that. Um, 
And so you do have to really understand who your customers are um, as you're making them aware of your, your mission, your values, your commitment. And maybe you lean into the things that are that are less controversial uh, when you have a really bifurcated or diverse audience of folks who use your services. Um, and so a lot of times we always advise brands to lean into their philanthropy and celebrate it. If there are charities that you're supporting, no one will object to a company that supports the Make-A-Wish Foundation or the Special Olympics or Wounded Warrior. Everyone agrees that these are amazing organizations. And so that's a great way to approach some of this. But once you start to go after some real social causes, you know, there are consequences. One group will love it, another won't. And that's the nature of the beast. You know? Yeah. I've I asked this question before about if a company should lean into a particular political leaning. And what I was told was there's only a very small percentage of your customers who will actually care and make a difference, like a different decision based on the views of the company. Most people won't care very much um, relative to the value exchange that they're expecting, right? So like most people will probably just care about the product and not all the marketing around it. But there is a percentage of people um, on either side who will be swayed in one way or, or another. Um, do you agree that the you know the impact of a marketing message um, is dependent on kind of how many people really care about the per- point of view of the brand? I, I do, and for big brands with wide appeal, I think market. You know, let's face it, companies typically think of uh, politics as the third rail, right? You touch it and you die. You try to really stay out of that, even though they have lobbying activity and they're actively seeking regulation and tax rates and everything else that makes sense for them. You don't typically lean into that because we've all seen what can happen through the power of viral marketing. And if you take a political stance that's unpopular, even with a small segment, you could be looking at a boycott. You could be looking uh, at quite a bit of that activity. Uh, Now, if you're like Nike, I think they did the math. They looked at the age demos and the folks who are buying their shoes and they said, we're going to stand for this. This is our value and we did it and they stood behind me. They used Colin Kaepernick at a time when he wasn't real popular and that was gutsy. But I think it was also a calculated decision and I don't think all brands could afford to do that, not by a long shot. And I also think that most customers still view their relationship with the brand as a commercial relationship. I shop this brand when I need this product and I'm not that interested in your politics. Uh, But on balance, I would like to believe that you stand for good things and treat people fairly uh, and support good charities. And those things help. But I wouldn't get uh, overtly political. And I say this as a former political scientist, you know. Be very, very careful with those things because uh, anytime you enter the political arena and stake out a position, you will anger someone. The, yeah. You will delight someone, but there will be an equal and opposite reaction somewhere. Yeah. So just, just be aware of it. That's so interesting. Um, I always thought, you know, if my dreams don't work out, I'll just go into political analytics and then get involved in politics because I think that sounds endlessly fascinating and important yeah well there i mean the the analytics are uh, are amazing behind it right now for sure i mean from fundraising to candidate testing to brand i mean candidate imagery all of that stuff um i, I think the analytics have become really exciting there uh, good good stuff yeah yeah it interests and, and it because it's very similar to the value that brands get out of 
uh, analyzing customer bases and customer intents and where the demand is for various um, product offerings. And it's such a similar uh, practice from a measurement and analytics perspective that that it has a lot of uh, intrigue. Yeah, it does. I mean, in fact, as you know, I was a political science professor, and uh, and I went into marketing outside of politics. But to me, it's the same literatures, it's the same methodologies, it's the same techniques, right? And it's being able to think about causes and effects, measuring them, quantifying them. It all works, and it should work in a number of different areas. So there, there's a certain fluidity there that I think is is kind of fun. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, this this has been a really great conversation, Don. Thank you for coming on. This has been great. Yeah, thanks for having me, Alex. This is a lot of fun. Um, and I look forward to seeing all the great podcasts that you're going to put together for 2022. Yeah, I uh, can't wait to share them with you. Thanks. Thanks again.